I, I don't watch reality TV shows, but, but I do remember when the TV show Survivor came out. Many of you may, may know Survivor. I, I think that I watched a total of one episode during the whole course of its run as a series. Um, the show, you may know, is based on the idea that several people were on an island and that only one of them would survive. People would be voted off the island or they would lose in a competition until only one person survived. Um, one of the things I, I think I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, if I remember from the show, is that they would pull kind of contestants off by themselves and have uh, them speak kind of directly into a camera, somewhat confessing their thoughts about the other contestants or their plans for being victorious in the, the enterprise. And, and from what I understand, this kind of secluded confession before a camera was pretty common in reality TV shows over the last 15 years or so. Juicy bits of backstory would be shared, relationships would be revealed, and frustrations would be laid bare. You see, we as, as human beings are interested in confessions, but let's be honest, we're more interested in other people's confessions than we are in kind of giving our own. Well, this morning, as we turn to study Psalm 51, we're invited into the confession of another person. We're invited in to hear David's confession. It's a confession unlike any of those confessions on the reality TV shows. David doesn't mention his hatred of others around him. He doesn't blame other people for his failures. No, in this confession, David honestly owns up to his sin. David, he, he could have kept this confession to himself, but instead he chose to write it down, and the Lord chose to include it in the canon of Scripture. Through the ages, David's confession has been used by the people of God to honestly own up to their own guilt and sin, and to seek God for mercy. It's my hope that as we study Psalm 51, and David's confession. We would learn more about what it really means to confess our sins before the Lord and to seek Him for mercy. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you should be able to find Psalm 51 on page 474. 474. And while you're turning there, let me offer just a little bit of background for our study. Last week, we began uh, in studying through a, a few selected psalms. This is really part of a larger project in studying through all of the psalms. In, in, in my own preaching ministry here at Arlington Baptist, I'm essentially working toward preaching through the whole Bible, which would mean preaching through every book of the Bible uh, at some point. And because the book of psalms is so long and so wonderful, uh, I've chosen to preach a handful of psalms at a time, uh, sprinkling them kind of in between uh, a book from the Old Testament, like Numbers, we studied last fall, and uh, a book from the New Testament, like 2 Thessalonians, which we'll study uh, later on in the spring, Lord willing. Now, when we studied Psalm 10 last week, I mentioned that I want us to keep uh, something in mind about the psalms each time we study them and look at them. That's this. That they're about Jesus. The Psalms are about Jesus. They are um, not only hymns of worship and prayer, 
of prayers of the afflicted. They're also prophetic promises about God's messianic king. In other words, they, they play an important role in the storyline of the Bible in pointing us to Jesus Christ. So after the resurrection, you'll recall that Jesus is walking and is talking to a few disciples. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said this. Jesus said, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Psalms are about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we thought about last week, they're not all about Him in precisely the same way. Some are about the creative power of God the Father, who we, of course, know created through the Son, Jesus, and the Spirit. Some are particularly focused on God's King, and that Israelite King serves as a type and shadow of God's ultimate King, Jesus Christ. Some are about the return of God's King. This is what we thought about last week when we studied Psalm 10. We thought about the wonderful hope of Jesus returning to judge the world in righteousness and to make all things new. Psalm 51 is about Jesus in yet another way. Psalm 51 is about Jesus in that it gives us words to confess our sin and so reveal our need for Jesus. Through King David's confession, we remember that we are all sinners and in need of a better king. We need a king who is not merely a man after God's own heart. We need a king who is a man that has God's heart and who can give us new hearts. If you take a closer look at the ascription of Psalm 51 there, you'll see these words. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This tells us the context in which this psalm was written. It was written out of David's grief and remorse for his sin when he was confronted by the Lord through the prophet Nathan about his adultery. Dispersed throughout Psalm 51, we'll find David's confession of sin and David's confession of God's character. We'll work our way through Psalm 51 twice, actually, and seek to notice these two elements of his prayer sprinkled throughout. Well, we'll think about them under, under these headings. Those are the headings of confronted with our sin and comforted by our God. So if you're taking notes, those two points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. first point is confronted with our sin. The second is comforted by our God. Let's begin with the, our first point, confronted with our sin. And as we do, let's read all of Psalm 51. Let me read all, all of Psalm 51, beginning there with the ascription. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. and You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. If it were, were not for the inscription, I think that we, we may be hard-pressed to understand what precipitated such a raw outpouring of sorrow and grief. David, he throughout the psalm, he piles up terms when he confesses that he's a transgressor. He does it in verses 1 and 3. He confesses that he needs to be washed of iniquity in verses 2 and 5 and 9. He confesses that he needs to be cleansed of his sin in verses 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 9. And in verse 4, he says that he has done what is evil in God's sight. And in verse 14, he asks God to deliver him from blood guiltiness, which, according to, to one scholar, either refers to sin uh, requiring the death penalty or sin that led to the death of an innocent person. In short, David has been confronted with his sin, and he has confessed it, and he's confessed it over and over and over again. And I've just named 12 instances in Psalm 51 where David explicitly speaks of himself as guilty of committing offenses against God. And we could probably add another dozen or so implicit references of David's guilt from Psalm 51. Now, I would hazard the guess that a modern-day modern psychologist, if they were confronted with this David as their patient, they might be concerned that David uh, does not have a healthy view of himself. But what if this is what it looks like to take God's perspective on our sin when we are confronted with it? Are we supposed to grieve over our sin like David does here? Why is David so struck to the core over his sin? To answer that question, I think we need to go back and think a little more deeply about the ascription that heads this psalm, which again, you'll notice, it says to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. I wonder if you remember the story that this ascription refers to. Uh, if you will, please keep one finger here and turn backward in your Bibles. Turn toward the beginning of them. 
to 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 263. 263. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 12 refers to Nathan's confrontation of David. And we're going to read about that in a minute. But there are a number of events which lead up to this confrontation that I kind of want to summarize for us. In the storyline of the Bible, until we reach Jesus, we are always left asking the question, is this the promised seed? Is this the one who after the fall of Adam, God promised, would come and crush the head of the serpent? Is this the one who will crush the enemies of God's people and establish God's eternal kingdom? Is this God's promised king? As we're reading the Bible, that's the question we're always confronted with until we get to Jesus and it's definitively answered. The books of First and Second Samuel hold out a lot of hope to us with regard to this question as they're about the establishment of God's kingdom. When we come to 1 Samuel, people who might be the true and promised seed, they, they get ruled out almost immediately. So first we meet Eli and his two offspring, in Hophni, in his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. But they're clearly not the seed. Uh, just as Adam, they take what is forbidden. They, they eat food that they're not permitted to eat. And then we have hope for Samuel, who next appears in the book. And our hopes are well-founded, but he's not to be God's anointed one. What is more, his offspring are not pure in heart like he was. He was. His, his offspring are like Eli's offspring, like Adam's offspring. For their hearts are also filled with sin. You see, the promised seed needs to be the start of a new humanity and produce children who have God's rule written on their hearts, who have new hearts created in them. And so we encounter Saul. In the book of Samuel. And by all appearances, he might be the seed. After all, he crushes the enemies of God's people. In one of his first battles, he defeats Nahash, king of the Ammonites, whose name actually means serpent. Could he be the seed who will crush the head of the serpent? No, for like Adam, he disobeys God's word. He is ruled by the fear of man rather than being ruled by the word of God. And then there is David, the David who wrote Psalm 51. David advances our understanding in what should really mark the promised seed. Like Saul, he defeats the enemies of God's people. He even defeats a, a giant who wears a, a coat of mail as part of his armor. Some scholars have taken that to have the appearance of the scales of the serpent. So David lops off the head of a giant serpent, and he soon takes the throne as king of Israel in 2 Samuel 5. And Israel experiences great success under David's rule, and we as readers are meant to have great hopes for David, that he's the one. David, he defeats the Philistines. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the, the ark of the Lord is brought to Jerusalem. Worship is being restored. He's calling God's people to worship Him. God even enters into a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord promises that His offspring will reign forever. All signs point toward the possibility of David being the promised seed who will fully and finally establish God's kingdom. David offers a, a godly prayer of gratitude for all that God has done in and through him. And he continues to rack up enemies 
uh, he just rack up victories against the enemies of God's people and he shows untold grace and kindness to his own enemies. But then something monumentally tragic happens. Our heavenly hopes for David come crashing down to earth in 2 Samuel 11. And just as Adam and Eve's eyes led them astray, so did David's eyes. Adam and Eve, they saw what was forbidden, the fruit that was pleasing to their eyes, and David saw Bathsheba, a forbidden woman. She was pleasing to his eyes, and the deeds that followed were displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. And when we meet Bathsheba for the first time in the Bible, we're told that she's beautiful, that she's bathing, and that David is watching her from his roof. King David sent a servant to inquire about her, and the news comes back that she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And in 2 Samuel 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 4, the narrator interjects an interesting comment about Bathsheba. He tells us that she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And this is no doubt a reminder of Leviticus chapter 18, verse 19, and the fact that David, the king, is about to make himself unclean. You wonder why David prays, creating a clean heart. With horror, we watch the tragedy unfold. Bathsheba became pregnant by David. David, seeking to cover his tracks, had her husband Uriah killed. Michael Wilcock says this about all that has taken place. He says, David, coveting, David's coveting and then theft of another man's wife, his adultery with her, his murder of her husband, and his conspiracy with his chief of staff to cover up the facts, five of the Ten Commandments were broken in one sordid and cynical enterprise. This is the background to 2 Samuel 12 and Psalm 51. Now read 2 Samuel 12 verses 1 to 10. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David, uh, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah and if this were too little I would add to you as much more 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. One of the striking things that we, we have in those ten verses is the Lord saying to David, I gave you this and that and that and this. I gave you all these things and it were too little for you. Who does that remind you of? It's Adam in the garden with everything that he could have possibly ever needed and it was too little for him. And just like Adam sinned and fell, David sinned and fell. So turning back to Psalm 51, I hope you can see why Psalm 51 is so raw with emotion. David seems almost oblivious before Nathan comes onto the scene. Through the word of the Lord, Nathan held up a mirror to David's soul, and Psalm 51 is what he saw. Look at verse 1 again. David asked God to blot out his transgressions. Notice the plural, transgressions. David broke multiple commandments in his sin. He was guilty of many transgressions. Bathsheba was unclean, and with her, David made himself unclean. So look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David put Uriah to death, a sin for which he deserved to die. So read verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Now for those of us who are skeptical, we might be tempted to think that David is just putting on a show. He, he got caught. Uh, and he is really just expressing sorrow for getting caught. Psalm 51 is a good PR campaign. When a figure in, in government messes up, the, the thing to do is to publicly kind of own up to it, say how sorry you are, and then that you're going to try and do better from this point going forward. I would just note that the public apologies that we often hear these days, and perhaps even our own personal apologies, too often stop short of what David admits here. Public figures say sorry, and we often say sorry, but sorry is not an admission of guilt. Saying I was wrong is an admission of guilt. Saying I sinned is an admission of guilt. I, I don't think we can view David's confession in Psalm 51 as a good PR move or stopping short of admitting his guilt and sin. Look at verse 4 again. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When we are, are confronted, when, when confronted with his sin, David confessed his sin. And he didn't let God's judgment stand in the way. He didn't try to self-justify. Do we do the same? Do we honestly own up to our sins? Do you even know your transgressions like David says he knows his in verse 3? Is your sin ever before you? Or do you willfully kind of push it to the edges of your consciousness? Consciousness. What keeps you from confessing your sin and sinfulness to God like David did? Let us resolve to confess our sin to God and to one another. 
It is true that, that David also sinned against his own wife by committing adultery. It is true that David sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, and against the people of Israel, but ultimately his sin was against the living God. For David had violated God's standard of righteousness and justice. God is right and blameless to pronounce David as guilty. God will be right and just to cast David away from his presence and take his Holy Spirit from David. Verse 11. Under the Old Covenant, uh, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit was more associated with a temporary, special kind of equipping for God's leader, for the leader of God's people. Uh, we see this often in the book of Judges. We even see it with Saul, where he is anointed with the Spirit, but then later the Spirit is removed from him. And here is the real heart of what David confesses. He has been a sinner, one guilty of violating God's law from before his birth. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is not saying that he was born out of a sinful relationship that his mother had. He is saying something far more radical. He is saying that from the very moment of his existence, he has been marked by the sin of Adam. As a significant side note, I would just I'd also observe that David links personhood with conception. At conception, he is an identifiable individual. In other words, he is a me. In sin did my mother conceive me. And sin is not just something we do. We are sinners and we sin because we are descendants of Adam. Apart from Jesus Christ as human beings, we are, in the words of our church's statement of faith, by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God, positively inclined to evil, and therefore under just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse. We sin because we are sinners from birth, from conception even. We have inherited Adam's sinful nature. This confession shows us that we not only need to be forgiven of our particular offenses against God's law, but also that we need inward renewal and new hearts. We need cleansing. We need new hearts that actually love God's law. We need God's law written on our hearts, and as such, we need to be given new desires to do God's law. This, too, is part of David's confession of his sinful character, and it comes out through his pleas. David not only pleads for cleansing in verses 2 and 7, but in verse 10, David offers this plea to God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. There is a new creation, a new heart needed. This is one at the same time a confession of David's sinfulness and a confession about what God can do. There is both conviction and comfort in this verse. But before we move on to our, our second point, where we think about the comfort of God, I want us to stop and reflect further on whether or not we're convicted in this way. Let's remember what prompted David's confession. The word of God through Nathan the prophet. That was a unique encounter in redemptive history. You're not a king of Israel. I'm not a king of Israel. So this is a unique event. And yet, what we can say as Christians is that we have the word of God. We have the Bible. This is God's word to us. It's a personal word to us. 
And one of the questions that we should always ask when we're interacting with the Bible is this. How does this passage of Scripture confront me and expose my sinfulness? Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to you and me. As I said, it's a personal word. God means for us, for you and I, to hear his word and to personally respond to it. God convicts us of sin through his word. And this can come in many different ways. It can come through the the preaching of God's word. It can come through the, the reading of God's word, praying God's word, singing God's word, or another brother or sister in Christ speaking God's word to us. You know, in our church covenant, we agree to faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. That means gently and graciously confronting one another with the word of God. It does not mean confronting one another with our opinions or preferences as though they were the word of God. No, in in Colossians chapter 3 verse 16, we hear Paul say this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It is so important that we gently and graciously confront one another with the Word of God. And it is almost equally important to make sure that we are not confronting one another with our opinions and preferences as though they were the Word of God. Individually, Whenever we're interacting with the Bible, let's be asking ourselves that question. How does this passage confront me and expose my sinfulness? Now, as a pastoral matter, I also want you to ask the follow-up question. And how does this passage of Scripture comfort me in Jesus Christ? Now, if we're we're honest with ourselves, uh, we're much better at thinking about how God's Word comforts us than confronts us. But both are needed, and both, in God's kindness, appear in this psalm. Children, youth, young adults, the Bible is God's word for you too. Uh, But you can only hear it, hear from it, if you're interacting with it. Do Do you realize what a privilege it is to have access to God's word? Many countries forbid the possession of Bibles. The freedom and access that we have to God's Word is a privilege. And it's one of the reasons that, that in every class we have here, available for you here at the church, that we make sure we open up our Bibles and we read from them and study them. And let me encourage you to do the same throughout the week. Talk to your parents or a mature Christian friend about what it means to treasure God's Word and to give yourself to learning from God's Word. Let's turn now and consider our second point comforted by our God. And as we do, I want us to read Psalm 51 again. And as we read Psalm 51, try to take special note of what David says about God and his character in these verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I wonder what you gleaned about the character of God from, from reading that reading of Psalm 51. I think that we're given a beautiful portrait of the character of God in this psalm. But to the natural man, I think that this character, this character portrait could be confusing. The reason I say that is while there are aspects of God's character that could extend comfort to sinners, there are also aspects of God's character in this psalm that could elicit terror. Unless we know the true portrait of God's character, comfort from Psalm 51 could remain elusive. And let's just walk through this psalm so you can see what I mean. Right, right away there in verse 1, you notice that David tells us that God is merciful and loving and that he can blot out transgressions. That's comforting, right? The comforts continue to come in. In verse 2, God can wash and cleanse sinners. That, that's comfort, right? Because when we commit sin, though we may not be physically impure, inwardly we feel as though there is black soot all over our souls. The insides of our hearts feel like soot-stained fireplaces, and we just want to be clean. Verse 4 is frankly not as comforting. For there we learn that God can be sinned against. What is more, we learn that God judges justly. He's, he's not a corrupt judge who can be bought off. Just, just look down toward the end of the psalm at verse 16 there. You'll notice this. The Lord does not delight in sacrifice. He can't be bait off a burnt offering. Not when guilty and unclean hearts and hands like ours defile the offering. God sees our evil and He sees our heart. He's righteous. Verse 14. And because of it, He's worthy of praise. Verse 15. So how is it that this righteous judge who is worthy of praise can cleanse sinners when sinners cannot offer anything to Him in order to secure their cleansing? There is nothing that David can do. There is nothing that we can do but cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. 
According to verse 17, we must come to this point of brokenness and emptiness before God. As the hymn writer Augustus Toplady once put it, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. In my hands no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. You see, God is the kind of God who despises the pride and haughtiness of men and women who pull themselves up by their self-righteous bootstraps in His presence. God is the kind of God who despises the pride and haughtiness of men and women who rely on their own good works in an effort to cover their own sin and to cleanse themselves with their filthy rags. So you see, all that we are left with before God is nothing but our sin and brokenness. And God is the kind of God who will not despise a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. This is the kind of truth that He delights in in the inward being. Verse 6, this is the, the wisdom that He's pleased to teach us in the secret places of our hearts. So you see, the truth is that we have nothing to give to Him. And the good news is, that he has it all. And notice that David is confident that God is pleased not simply to pardon, but to renew, remake, and reuse. In verses 7 through 11, David pled with God to purge and cleanse and wash him. These verses seem to be ways uh, different ways of stating the hope of the new covenant. Don't they sound like the promises of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where Moses said, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Or how about what we read in Jeremiah 31? But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Or this promise in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't it amazing that even before the new covenant promises of Jeremiah and Ezekiel were written, David was essentially praying and trusting God for them. He knew what he needed. And he knew that only God could deliver it. That is what God did through his king, his final king, the Lord Jesus Christ. David pled with God not to cast them away from God's presence or take the Holy Spirit from him, 
like God had done with Saul. David pled with God to restore to him the joy of his salvation and uphold him, by which he meant that he wanted the Lord's saving mercy to return as his chief joy. According to verse 13, with the, the restoration of the Lord's salvation as David's chief joy, he is thus equipped, amazingly, he's thus equipped to teach transgressors and sinners the gracious ways of God. You know, one of Satan's dirty tricks is to prey upon the people of God and their sin. He preys upon our tender consciences and tells us that the Lord has no use for us. But here is David, staring at what is possibly the worst sin in his entire life. Here is David, laying it all down before the throne of God, confessing that he is a great sinner. And running to God for mercy and forgiveness, while at the same time expectant that the Lord will renew and restore him. Here is David even confessing that God is so merciful that he can even use him to help fellow sinners return to God. Brothers and sisters, apart from the word of God, your most potent evangelistic weapon might just be your dark and dirty, sinful heart. So pray like David for God to use you. Pray for deliverance. And pray for God to make your tongue sing of His righteousness. Verse 14. Pray like David for God to open your mouth and declare His praise. Verse 15. Our faith, like David's, must always have the faith of others in view. That's the trajectory of this psalm. Look at where it ends. It ends verses 18 and 19 with David desiring for the Lord to do the same work that he has done in his heart among the people of Israel. What has taken place in David individually needs to take place corporately among the people of God. Only when the people of Israel recognize their sinful condition before the Lord will their sacrifices be right and therefore a delight to God. Only when they are no longer trusting themselves but trusting in God for mercy will their hearts be filled with true worship of God. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder if Psalm 51 resonates with you. Is there any part of you that agrees with David and his confession of his sin? Is there any part of you that is astounded by the fact that God uses such sinful people like David? Could it be that you're not perfect? This church is not a place for perfect people. It is a place for imperfect people. It is a place for sinners. For those who openly and honestly confess their sin and their need to be washed whiter than snow. As David says there in verse 7. You see the truth is that God created the world and all that is in it. He created you and me. And as the author of our lives, he has the right to express his good authority over them. But like our first parents, like Adam and Eve, and like David, we have all sinned against God. We have all decided that we want to throw off his authority and live our own way. And let's be honest, there are even times in our lives where we try to hide our sin and cover our tracks like David did. Sin is rebellion against God. 
and angers God. And rightly so, for He has given us life and breath. And we have chosen to use our God-given lives, the breath that He has given us, to reject His rule over us. Like David, we've lied and cheated and stolen and lusted and murdered others in our hearts. These offenses and others are offenses against the eternal God, which all deserve an eternal punishment. And that's what hell is. We all stand in danger of facing God's terrifying wrath for all eternity. Still, the Bible tells us this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does God do that? How did He bring to pass the comforts of Psalm 51? He did it by taking on flesh and dwelling among us. In love, God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and He lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience and love toward God the Father. In His earthly ministry, He healed and cleansed unclean lepers. He told those who would listen that He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He told the crowds that He was the source of living waters and eternal life. He was David's son, born in David's town. But unlike David, He was free from all sin. Every thought... Every word, every deed of the Lord Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. And yet, He died. On the cross, Jesus took the sins and the punishment for them, for all of those who ever turned from their sins, confessed them, and put their faith in Him. Jesus substituted Himself for sinners and took their punishment he took and bore in his body on the tree the eternal wrath of God. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. His resurrection proves to us that he was God's promised king. Friends, like David, we all need to confess our sin and our need for cleansing it is because Jesus shed His blood on the cross for sinners like you and me that we can be washed whiter than snow. Oh friend, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ today and be made clean. We should conclude. Through Psalm 51, we have considered David's personal confession of sin. We have also seen in his confession, the comfort he drew from the character of God. Confessing our sin does not amount to hating ourselves. It amounts to hating those things which God hates. Listen to what Pastor Tim Keller said about the nature of Christian confession. He said, If you know what God has done at infinite cost to Himself, He's put you into a relationship so that you'll never be rejected by Him then your motivation when you sin is to go get Him. You want fellowship with Him. When the thing that most assures you is the thing that most convicts you, you'll be okay. Because when you're convicted of sin in a gospel way, it drives you 
toward God. Without the gospel, we hate ourselves instead of our sin. Without the gospel, we're motivated through all sorts of awful fear and pride to change. And it doesn't really change our hearts. It just restrains our hearts. See, it's only through Jesus that we can be given new, clean hearts. Hearts that love Him and long to serve Him. David was driven by the holy, loving, and merciful character of God to confess his sin. He humbly asked God to change his heart and to wash him whiter than snow. May our confessions be marked by the same conviction and comfort. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that sometimes uh, we, we do not want to look into the mirror of your word and see the darkness that is in our hearts. But Lord, we, we thank you for it because we long to be like Jesus. Lord, we, we pray and ask that you would help us to more readily confess our sin because we know that there is mercy in Jesus Christ. Lord, so we, we welcome your conviction and we pray and ask that you would use it to drive us to Christ. And we pray and ask that you would comfort us in and through him. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.